0: this is a a twin sermon a diptych last week i talked about the beauty of children and told you the story of gabriel the one who whispered to each child before they are born all of the wisdom of god and all of the wisdom of the cosmos and then kissed that babe on the forehead And they forgot it all. And then they were born. And how wonderful that is, how insufferable we would all be, know-it-alls who knew it all. And that our growing up and aging is, maybe I shouldn't use clawing, but sometimes for me it feels like clawing my way back to some sort of useful understanding of how to navigate in the world and exist and be an ethical, joyful human being. It all feels complicated. But I want to talk about why do I have a twin sermon about children and and, and then the elderly? What's the a question I ask myself often before I preach is so what's the fierce urgency of now? Why bother when there is so much going on in the world are we stopping to talk about the elderly? And I think I continue to preach and dig into this increasing sense of we are a divided humanity and we'll talk about Race or gender or experience or poverty, social injustices. But I increasingly wonder if something that divides us more than the color of our skin and poverty is our age and understanding of what it means to be in this world. So while the Old Testament does revere children. It has a lot to say about the aged. I've had in my mind lately in Genesis the stories of at first they were Abram and Sarah and then God asked them to change their names bequeathed new names to them as they aged. The Relationship between Sarah and Abraham. Oh my, is that complicated? Holy Toledo. God it gives, uh, tells Abraham to take his Egyptian slave girl and bear a child in his nineties, and then promises Sarah and Abraham that they will have a child. By then, Abraham is 100, and Sarah is in her 90s. (laughs) Lately, I've been thinking, oh, you know, the scribes who wrote down all these stories, they must have been in their 20s and 30s. Because I remember thinking when I was younger how ancient my grandmother or everyone else was. Oh, my God, they're so old. You're a mother? You're a father? So I kind of wonder if a little bit of that ageism is going on and who's documenting the Bible for us. On the other hand, the whole point of the story is to say God is bigger than all of this and can change biology and make Abraham and Sarah have a child and create a new nation. And the whole point is there will be a new nation. Which is how we always think of our children. Who knows who I'm giving birth to? But Sarah and Abraham are complicated and uh, in their old age, there are lessons for us, not just in a willingness to do something new and horrifying, which is give birth to a child when you're a ninety and a hundred. <laughs> but so the story is foretold in the way it's foretold in the Bible, and then we are given a scenario where Abraham is in a tent, and Sarah's there too somewhere in back, doing wifely things, and three strangers come, and the point of the story is Abraham welcomes these three strangers, not knowing who they are, so it's a lesson about hospitality, but because Abraham is almost 100, it's a lesson about hospitality to the unknown later in life. And because Abraham is hospitable, God reminds Abraham, and Sarah's overhearing this, that she will bear a child, and she can't help but snicker. (laughs) And God says, did you laugh? No. Sarah says, no, 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 I didn't laugh. No, no. And then Abraham laughs later. And we're all... Incredulous that this happens, and indeed it does, and Isaac is born, and the start of a new nation, at least in that telling. But for me, the point of the story is this welcomeness to new ideas, and Hillman's, the reading's dismissal of aging as a disease and something that has to close us off. So I actually have, if you'll bear with me momentarily, a love letter to send to Hope Unitarian Church. Because I stepped into this congregation, not a spring chicken, but, you know, we compare ourselves. So relatively speaking, I have dwelled in this congregation of many elders and been deeply shaped by your insights, by your patience, by your welcoming new ideas, and also by your imperfections in the times you go, heck no, we're not going to change. <laughs> Hell no. And to recognize those young scribes who are amazed that Abraham at 100 is giving birth. Abraham maybe have been 40, but look, looked 100. <laughs> that part of aging is you get to embody every single age. So I recognize that we all feel 5, and we all feel 15. We all still have that 15-year-old that, oh ooh, look out what I'm going to do. And we have the 20-year-old, and we have the 60 and and I'm grateful to be amongst the 80- and 90-year-olds who have extraordinary things to share in your perfectness and in your imperfectness. And so we do. We have to claw our way back to the wisdom that Gabriel kissed away when we were born. And so the fierce urgency of now is recognizing how much we have to give each other and to help all ages at Hope Church interact and exchange ideas. So I realize this diptych of a set of sermons really is a triptych, and I I must not ignore this in-between children and the aging, and I'll get to that. So last week... I looked into what are the rights of children. The UN speaks very eloquently, along with all the work of nations, of what kind of rights do children need to be protected. So I thought, surely they've got something to say about the elderly. And what are international, universal human rights that the elderly must have? And it was interesting. It's not so clear. They have a discussion, like Hillman suggests that much of what we call aging is a social construct. But I don't know about you, but I feel increasingly vulnerable and want protection, and we are busy snipping up our country's safety net. And the reason, again, that this matters is it continues to divide us in our voting, in our policies, all our policies. So the UN talks about all of the policies about retirement and nursing homes that grow out of this construct. And so we're stuck in this loop of we define the age this way, so we all begin to think we're that way. Yeah, okay, I'm infirm, I need... We don't value that people can work past 65, but now we're requiring people to work past 65 because we don't value that they've worked hard enough and deserve a safety net. If you read, if you research about the generational divide, there's a lot out there. There's a lot of millennial Gen Y trashing but the psychologists and sociologists who have statistics and studies to back up their work say, wait a minute. There is this conflating of generational differences, and the way we need to think about generational differences is in two ways. One, you're a certain age, and so you have a cohort of people who are your age, and things do happen physically, and there are changes in your body and in your understanding of the world. So there are generational differences. I am not like my 20-year-old children. At the same time, I'm part of a cohort, a baby boomer, and we've experienced cultural events. So there's this generational cohort, and then a cultural cohort. And those two things create what is often called the generational divide. And one of my favorite psychologists, Gene uh, Twang, talks about this notion that we have culture, cultural differences, that baby boomers or the greatest generation will use just the shorthand for naming those who've experienced certain cultural events and been shaped by them. that we need to step toward you and say, tell me about that time in our country when we were so divided and fighting over what the American flag means that we can speak to who we are today and what the argument is and is not. And that often what is said about Gen Y the millennials, the iGen, the ones who grew up with cell phones and their um, sippy cup, hand in hand, (laughs) that we're actually experiencing all that too. So by saying, oh, they're completely different because they've grown up that way, we're ignoring that we are immersed in that culture and that we are not so divided. I'm going to quote her because she talks about traits that millennials have statistically accurate. Millennials are more individualistic, optimistic, self-confident. They have high expectations. They value equality and tolerance. But then she steps right over that statement and says... Yes, millennials are like that, but so are we as an American culture because we have all been shaped by technology and Facebook and social media and what's happening that we have inter- international access to information instantly. We are all being changed by this. So back to Sarah and Abraham and hospitality to strangers and strangeness, that it may be the millennials who don't have to search into their memory to say, oh, it's obvious we should welcome all who are seeking refuge here. But the Bible reminds us that It's we who've experienced being shut out. It's we who've experienced other periods of time in our country when there were great divides and arguments that seemed insurmountable and violence. That we have wisdom to share, and we must not be afraid of the new and the strange. We are not sick. And how for us to continue having conversations across all the things that divide us, including generational and cultural. That's our task, to keep talking, to keep being a source of information, but also recognizing that we were kissed and don't have all the answers. don't have all the answers I think the joy of youth is being curious and the joy of old age is holding on to that curiosity and never assuming that you know it all thank goodness we were kissed and all that knowledge fell away So that's my charge. I asked us to look last week at everything as if you were a child. So the charge this week is to talk to someone older than you. They're all out there. Even your spouse counts. And ask for an experience in their life Or an event in their past, be it personal or cultural, that speaks to the problems we are so wrestling with today. There's wisdom to be had. May it be so.